Me for our scripture reading this morning, it is taken from Second Timothy, uh, the Apostle Paul's second uh, epistle to Timothy that we have in our scriptures, chapter three, and I'll be reading verses one through seventeen. Uh, For the reading of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to stand, and after uh, we finish reading God's Word, we will pray together. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 2 Timothy 3.1 But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all... The Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Would you bow your heads with me and join me in prayer as we pray to the God who has given us these words. O Holy Father, by the Almighty Word breathed out of your mouth, you have created and ordained all things for your glory and for our good even these wretched last days in which we live, days in which leaders and church members alike all too often tend to be apostate and prideful lovers of self rather than grateful lovers of the one true living and holy God of all. And Father, in these troubled times, 
of devastating wildfires, a global plague, an increasing political protest and divisiveness, not only in the world, but also in the church. Your word, O Lord, has exposed the dark and damned hearts of all men. Hearts that are willfully deceived and deceiving. Hearts that are willfully abused and abusive. Hearts that are willfully disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, and brutal, even as your word testifies. And Lord, as we look around in our world today, this truth of your word, sadly, is so abundantly apparent on every street, whether it be in Washington, D.C., or whether it be in the poorest neighborhood, whether it be in the suburbs or the cities, Lord Jesus, these are the things that we are seeing. And our best efforts, Lord Jesus, cannot hide the reality of the overflow of our hearts, which you have testified to in your word. And Father, we confess all too often and too easily, if we're honest, this too can be the testimony of our hearts as well. And yet in love and mercy, you have not abandoned us to ourselves or our sin or our sinfulness, but instead you have graciously and mercifully given us your word that is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we're mindful that though the world is a dark place, at infinite cost to yourself, you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into our dark world and into our hearts. And you sent him to die on the cross, not for your sins, but certainly for ours and for our sinfulness. And you did so so that we might not just be forgiven, but so that we might become like you and we might be forgiving. And that we might be a people who are your children, who are transformed by faith and the sanctification of your word. And so that your love and mercy might abound yet more in our hearts. Your truth might reign in our minds. And that we might be a light of grace and truth in a world that so desperately needs it but runs from it. So as a church and as a family and as members of your household, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, with humble and grateful hearts for saving us from ourselves and saving us from the righteous and holy wrath that we so rightly deserve and to save us, Lord, from our ways, which left to ourselves, Lord, we are prone to wander and we would run as fast as we can, as far as we can from you and your truth. And yet, Lord, you have stepped in and you have rescued us people who did not want to be rescued and yet in love you did. Father, thank you for intervening in our lives. Thank you for uniting our hearts with Christ Jesus, your son, and for making us your beloved children, your family, your household. Thank you for making this your dwelling place, the dwelling place of your spirit. And thank you for making us light and salt in a world of darkness. Father, we thank you for loving and caring for us as your children in these dark days. 
Lord, you have watched over us. You have been present in our homes, in our church, in our workplaces, wherever we have gone. You have watched over us. You know our end from the beginning. Lord, you have watched over every step we take. And we thank you, Lord, for your loving care, especially for the weakest among us, Lord. Those who are facing financial or family difficulties at this time. Those who have recently lost loved ones. Those who are carrying unborn children. Those who are struggling spiritually, whether it be with loneliness, adversity, hard marriages, hard families, hard workplaces, hard families or in-laws, Lord. You have loved and cared for us. And though at times we feel alone, Lord, our feelings we know are not true. But the truth that we live by is the truth of your promise and your word and the testimony of the cross that shows, Lord, you are one who keeps your promises and your steadfast love endures even in the darkest of times. So we just thank you for all you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, for last Sunday in our baptism service and the testimony that you are still saving souls in our midst. Father, we thank you that you are in this time still building your church and adding members to this household, not because of anything we have done or said or labored or not because we're some spectacular church, but simply because, Lord, you are a God who saves, who is able and willing to save. And as you save people and open their eyes and deliver them from their sin and show them the beauty and goodness of your glory, Lord, of a God who saves and forgives sins, as you do so, you have continued to build this church slowly but surely to add to our numbers those who have been transformed, Lord Jesus, by your love through faith. Thank you for this, Lord, and thank you for last week, and thank you for those dear saints who were baptized as a testimony of your saving grace. Thank you for bringing our brother Will Wu back to us during his after his time away uh, in China, taking care of the affairs of his deceased father. Thank you for the way for others who have had family members who have been taken from them, how you've watched over them and brought them back to us and protected their faith at times when they have been pressed hard. Thank you, Father, for the dear and faithful saints who in the face of adversity have continued to minister to one another, to love you and to share your word and to encourage one another, even at a time where everything in this world separates us from one another. But most of all, Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your Son. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is present with us and whose word teaches, reproves, corrects, and trains us in righteousness, what we so desperately need, and is making us complete, equipped for every good work. We thank you, Father, that the good work that you've begun in this church and in our lives, you promise to complete, even if it means, Lord, correction and discipline in our own lives. We thank you this morning that you have gathered us together as a household, as a family, to enjoy a feast that you put before us, the life-giving word and the truth of your good news in Jesus Christ. Thank you for these things, Lord. Prepare our hearts as Ted comes to bring us the word. Support him and sustain him. Speak through him by the power of your spirit. 
And Lord, would you soften our hearts that we would be ready to receive your love through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, it's our privilege and joy to have our elder, Ted Sue, come and bring the word to us as part of our series on God's high calling for his church. God's high calling for his church. And we're going to see part of our calling is to protect against apostasy. And Ted is going to unfold that and he's going to explain that to us. In our home, and our household, I really don't worry about people breaking and entering because we have very little of earthly value in our home. If they come in, all they will get is my sermon notes and my textbooks. And they are welcome to those things. But when you have something valuable, you worry about things being stolen. You worry about things being taken from you. And what the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy is that we as the household of God are the richest, most blessed, and most privileged family in the entirety of creation because we have been given Jesus Christ and we have been given His good news that saves sinners from hell. And because we have something precious, that is something that the world and Satan and every aspect of this life desires to take from us. And so the Apostle Paul gives us warning, we need to be mindful of the gift we've been given and how we care for it. And this morning, our brother Ted Sue is going to come and bring us God's Word from 1 Timothy. Good morning, everyone. Um, as Pastor Mark mentioned, it's a privilege of mine uh, just to bring you the Word of God this morning as we continue our series on God's high calling for the church. And uh, if you would, just uh, one more time, if we could just pray and ask for the Lord's help to help us understand His revealed Word. Lord God, we just come before you one more time. Lord, would you reveal yourself to us this day through your Word. Um, We're reminded... Lord, that the secret things belong to you, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do every word of the law. Would you help us to do that this day? Lord, to trust you in the things that we don't understand that are going on in the world and in our lives, to trust you in those things because you are good and faithful and you're sovereign but to consider our responsibility, the one that you have given to us, to heed your word, not merely to hear it, but to be doers of the word, because you are worthy of our greatest trust and our greatest obedience. Would you exalt Christ through the preaching of your word this morning? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Joshua Harris is a name some of you may be familiar with, Others of you may not recognize his name, but may have heard of his best-selling book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Initially released in 1997, it would go on to sell over 1.2 million copies and become widely read and influential amongst the generation of young Christian evangelicals like myself at that time. And I distinctly remember being given that book by my roommate during my first year of college. 
And as well-intentioned but sadly misguided and immature freshmen, my roommate, who was a Christian, and I had made a pact not to date anyone during our first year in college, to hold one another accountable in that, so that we would not be distracted from growing in our walk with Christ, from developing godly relationships with brothers and sisters, and from focusing on our studies as pre-med students. By the way, my roommate, unbeknownst to me at that time, was interested in a gal in our Christian fellowship and started dating her the summer after our first year. But as a brand new believer, I recall being convicted by the principles of the book. As the title of his book suggests, Harris argued for a model of courtship as an alternative to contemporary secular dating in a culture that promoted sexuality. Despite its legalistic bent, the book challenged me to consider the value and importance of purity and holiness in relationships with members of the opposite sex, something the scripture upholds as well. His first best-selling book would be followed by another. He went from I Kiss Dating Goodbye to Boy Meets Girl, Say Hello to Courtship in which Harris shares how he met and married his wife, Shannon. And in 2004, at the age of 30, Joshua Harris would become the senior pastor of a megachurch in Maryland. During that time, he would also organize and lead a national conference for young Christians called New Attitude to share the truth of the gospel and the importance of the church in the lives of all believers. And guys like Al Mohler, Mark Dever, John Piper would be some of the keynote speakers at these conferences. Fast forward to last summer, July 2019. Joshua Harris's name would surface in a series of social media posts. First, Harris announced on his Instagram account that he and his wife were separating citing significant changes that have taken place in both of them. The news was eventually clarified that the couple was getting a divorce, and it was followed a few days later with this Instagram post. Quote, The information that was left out of our announcement is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Wow. A husband, a father, a pastor, an author an evangelical leader, an apostate. It would only be a few weeks after Joshua Harris's announcement on social media that Marty Sampson, a contemporary songwriter and popular worship leader whose music is sung by millions of people in churches around the globe every Sunday, 
took to Instagram to share that he's walking away from the faith. I quote, I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I am so happy now, so at peace with the world, it's crazy. He later deleted the post and wrote this. To the Church of Jesus Christ, I forgive you and I love you. I've got tears running down my face because it's so true. I adore you Christians. I love you so much. That's all. It was amazing being one of you, but I'm not anymore. In response to these sobering events, one Christian band leader wrote on his blog, What in God's name is happening to Christianity? More and more of our outspoken leaders or influencers who were once faces of the faith are falling away. What is happening to Christianity? Well, the Bible gives us a clear answer. What's happening to Christianity is exactly what the Word of God predicted. As we'll see from our passage this morning, we shouldn't be surprised that people fall away from the faith all the time. There are warnings throughout the scripture about the dangers of apostasy. And for every Joshua Harris and Marty Sampson, whose departure from the faith makes the headlines, there are many more pastors, worship leaders, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, and church members who fall away. It is tragic to behold, sobering to consider, but it should not come as a total surprise. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 19 through 20, a passage we looked at in Lagos a few weeks ago, the Apostle Paul writes, By rejecting this, that is, faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, we are told in chapter 4, verse 10, that Demas, who served alongside Paul in ministry and is mentioned in his letters to Philemon and to the church in Colossae, deserted the faith out of love for this present world. Paul was certainly no stranger to apostasy. And probably the most infamous example of apostasy in Scripture was Judas Iscariot, who walked with Jesus for three years as one of his twelve disciples, interacted daily with the Son of God, heard the truth taught day after day, witnessed his miracles firsthand, not only to turn his back on Christ, but to betray him for thirty pieces of silver. It begs the following question. Can one ultimately fall away if one was genuinely saved? Can a person be a Christian and then at some later point not be a Christian? Can believers lose their faith? The answer is no. And the Bible is very explicit about that. Once we have been genuinely converted to Christ and united to him through the power of the gospel, 
Nothing can separate us from Christ. Not even our own sin. After regeneration, one may sin. Indeed, will sin. And some may even fall into grievous sins, incurring God's displeasure, grieving the Holy Spirit, hurting the church, and bringing temporal judgments upon themselves. But if they were ever truly saved, they will return by repentance at some point. And that is a gospel promise. However, if one continues in their rejection of Christ, then we have to remember the words of 1 John 2.19, which says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That is to say, they were never truly Christians. They were pretend believers. They are what the Bible calls apostates. So as we continue our sermon series on 1 Timothy, on God's high calling for his church, we're going to learn that one of the primary functions of the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth is to guard against apostasy. To guard against apostasy. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 4, and read with me beginning at verse 1. 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Sorry, can I have help with the next slide? Thank you. From our text this morning, we are going to see five aspects of apostasy. First, we're going to see the certainty of apostasy. The source of apostasy. Agent of apostasy, the depiction or example of apostasy, and finally the remedy to apostasy. Once again, the certainty, the source or origin of apostasy, the agents of apostasy, the depiction, and finally the remedy to apostasy, verses 4 through 5. So let's dive right in. The first point is the certainty of of apostasy. As a quick recap of the first three chapters of this epistle, recall that in the opening verses of this letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul reminds young Timothy to remain at Ephesus so that he might charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Essentially, 
to reject whatever is contrary to the sound teaching of Scripture. At the time of writing, there were false teachers that had infiltrated the church and were seeking to mislead others by presenting a distorted gospel. In response, Timothy was to fight the good fight by defending the Christian faith and by proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through this effective word, applied and lived out, that men and women, elders and deacons, are transformed to fulfill their God-ordained calling within the church, which is the household of God. Paul ends chapter 3 by making this great and common confession of faith about the person and work of Christ. Verse 16, he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Against the backdrop of the truth of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done, the Apostle Paul writes in the very next verse, in verse 1 of chapter 4, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Some will depart from the faith. Now, a key principle in hermeneutics that helps us figure out the primary point of a passage is to look for the main clause. And it's given to us right here in the first part of verse 1 that we just read. Writing to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus at that time, and also to us in the church today, the Apostle Paul, under the authority of the Holy Spirit, states in no uncertain terms that some amongst us, that some amongst the local congregation will leave the faith. And those who depart from the faith stands in direct contrast and opposition to the true confession of faith, which is found in the perfect person of Christ and in the perfect work of Christ. But, the Spirit expressly says, is how it's translated in the NASB. But the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. The verses that follow this main clause simply describe, explain, illustrate, and expand upon this primary point. That apostasy is to be expected within the church without exception. Apostasy is to be expected within the church without exception. Now the word apostasy is not one we commonly hear about or use. So it's worth taking a moment to define it. It comes from the Greek word apistemi, apistemi, which literally means to depart or to go away from an original position. It's used to describe a person who at one point professed Christ and outwardly identified with the Christian faith. Someone who has been exposed to the truth, understands the gospel intellectually, and even affirms it. By definition, apostasy occurs within the church, amongst those who get baptized, become members of the local church, read their Bibles, join prayer meetings, 
take communion, even serve and lead in the church. It is different than mere unbelief amongst non-believers or doubt in someone who struggles to believe. Apostates are those who deliberately make a choice to walk away from the true faith they once professed and practiced. We see that this is not a new revelation that the Apostle Paul received from the Spirit. As the third person of the Godhead who inspired the words of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, in explicitly revealing this divine truth, is being entirely consistent with the rest of Scripture and with Christ himself, who taught the same truth during his time on earth. If you recall the parable of the sower, also known as the parable of the four soils, that is recorded for us in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we are told that a large crowd of people had gathered to hear what Jesus had to say as he was going from town to town proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells them this parable about a sower who went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, And as it grew up, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. When the disciples ask Jesus to interpret the meaning of the parable, he explains to them that the seed is the word of God. And that the ones that fell on the rock are those who when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But having established no root, they believe for a while in a time of testing what happens. Apistemi. They fall away. They fall away. This is what an apostate is. He knows superficially the truth of God, might even enjoy it for a season. But at the end of the day, he refuses to come under and submit to it with his whole life. It's not a lack of intellectual knowledge or understanding that hinders him from receiving the word. But rather, Hebrews 3.12 reminds us that it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an un believing, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to apistami, fall away from the living God. Brothers and sisters, how do you receive the word of God? With a humble and receptive spirit or with a prideful and resistant heart? You might not outright reject its truth. You might find the sermons on Psalm 23 from Pastor Mark helpful for your present trials and circumstances. You might even enjoy studying the Bible in your Logos small group. But as Pastor Mark has pointed out on multiple occasions, 
How do you respond when the word of God is brought to bear on your life through reproof and through correction? Do you resist, push back, excuse, or justify your sins when your spouse or roommate or small group discipler points you to the word of God and calls you to repentance? 2 Timothy 3.16, which was read earlier, says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You invite reproof and correction from the word of God as much as you appreciate its teaching and its training because you see it as God's Necessary means of sanctification in your life. How about this one? What do you do when you see an apparent contradiction in Scripture or come across a difficult passage or you have a hard time accepting a particular teaching of the faith? For example, the doctrine of election. We've all been there at one point. Do you question the Bible's absolute perfection and authority, its necessity and sufficiency for our lives? Or do you humble yourself before his word, prayerfully seek the Lord's help in understanding and submitting to his truth? The certainty of apostasy is not a reality of the past. It's a reality of the present And it's a reality of the future. It's not just the reality in liberal churches in America, but in gospel-believing, Christ-exalting, truth-proclaiming churches like ours. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. And we are living in those later times as we await the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This brings us to our second point for this morning, which is the source of apostasy. The source of apostasy. It's found in verse 1b. Here the Holy Spirit answers the question, how or by what means will some depart from the faith? We read, Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. We see in this verse that the origin or source of apostasy is deceitful and demonic spirits. Now, when we think of demons and deceitful spirits, we might imagine idol worshipers in remote places like Papua New Guinea who carry out sadistic and occult rituals. Or perhaps you associate them with the ministry of Jesus and the early apostles and believe that they have no influence in our lives as Christians living in the 21st century. Or perhaps you imagine these religious charlatans who hold large faith healing services in which they attempt to cast evil spirits out of people. We dismiss all of it as farce and treat the devil as if he were unreal or unworthy of serious consideration. But 
But brothers and sisters, that is exactly what Satan wants us to think of him. That he is harmless. Someone to be ignored or dismissed as a figment of our imagination. We are naive and distracted. We let down our guard. And apostasy creeps right into the church through the back door. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, writing to the same church in Ephesus, reminds believers that we are engaged in a constant and relentless war of epic proportion. Not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are therefore called to spiritual battle, to put on the full armor of God, from the head all the way down to our feet, that we might be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and to stand against the schemes of the devil. The problem is that as Christians, you and I don't live as if this were true. John Piper makes this very point in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, that as soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we neglect this truth of Ephesians chapter 6 and lack a wartime mentality. We see this reflected primarily in our lack of prayer, the lack of his word in our lives, and by our priorities and casual approach to spiritual things. But when we look to the word of God, we see that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking some, someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. That he is a liar and the father of lies, John 8.44. And as the prince of the power of the air, and the ruler and God of this world, he is a powerful and formidable foe with one single objective. To lead as many people away from the truth of God. And that has been his mission from the very beginning. In the opening chapters of Genesis, he takes on the form of a serpent and successfully seduces Adam and Eve to sin in the Garden of Eden, thus bringing the curse of death upon the entire human race. The book of Job begins with Satan's cunning and deliberate assault against Job, a righteous, God-fearing man. In an attempt to draw him away from God, Satan destroys Job's property and possessions. He kills all of his children, and strikes him with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And to rub salt into his wounds, he uses the words of Job's own wife to tempt him. Do you still hold your integrity? Curse God and die. Even the Son of God was not immune to the spiritual attacks of Satan, Following his baptism, before the start of his public ministry, 
Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days and 40 nights, he endures an onslaught of temptations from the devil. Just as he did with Eve, Satan attempts to lure our Savior into doubting the Father's love and plan for him, only to be rebuffed. The second Adam, unlike the first, ultimately prevails, bringing salvation through his perfect obedience and through his substitutionary death to all who would place their faith in him. And if we go to the final chapter in the story of redemption, to the book of Revelation, and read about the events of the end times that are to take place, We see that Satan and his army of demons are not done deceiving and leading people astray. Even as they are about to be cast into the lake of fire forever. In Revelations chapter 20, we are told that following the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation, and the second coming of Christ, Satan will be temporarily removed from the world during Christ's millennial reign on the earth. But after a thousand years, he will be released from prison. For what purpose? Verse 8 says, To deceive the nations. To deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle against the saints. Make no mistake about it. From the dawn of human history to the end, Satan and his demonic spirits have been on an all-out assault to lead people away from God. He went after our first parents. He went after Christ. And in the church today, he is committed to drawing people away from the faith. He is the ultimate source of all apostasy. But it is of great importance to note how Satan and his legion of fallen angels operate. The scripture is as clear about their tactics as it is about their mission. We see in our passage that it is through deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, that some will depart from the faith. In stark contrast to the Holy Spirit who guides us in all truth, John sixteen thirteen, these demonic spirits primarily operate through lies, deception, and false teachings. And as an expert in the art of seduction, Satan leads people away from the faith in a very subtle but treacherous way. He does so by taking the very word of God, twisting and distorting it, and presenting it as more attractive and believable than the real truth. That is the epitome of deception. That is how he tempted Eve. That is how he tempted Christ. And that is how, throughout church history, He has been leading people astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
It is no wonder then that the Apostle Paul urges Timothy to remain at Ephesus so that he may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Why? Because its source is demonic and it leads people away from the truth of God's word. Whether it comes in the form of myths, vain discussions, or endless genealogies which promote speculations, or in the form of legalism, antinomianism, Gnosticism, pragmatism, humanism, or secularism, at the end of the day, anything that is contrary to the teachings of his word is by nature demonic and destructive. The stakes are high, and there is no neutral ground. Either it leads one to Christ, salvation, and eternal life, or it leads to hell, apostasy, and eternal death. So, brothers and sisters, what are we devoted to? What are we devoted to? Is it the pure gospel of Jesus Christ and the sound doctrine of his word? Or is it something else? Now, none of us want to believe that we are devoting ourselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. But we need to honestly ask ourselves, what consumes our thoughts and our mind? Where are we devoting the most time, the most energy, the most money, the most resources? Let's not be deceived. Behind everything that is taking place in our current times, with the social justice movement, the protests and violence happening on the streets, the polarized political climate, the QAnon conspiracy theories floating around social media, the shutdown of churches, the fear on the one hand and the flippancy on the other of the COVID pandemic, behind all of that is an agenda. There is a cosmic battle of ideologies taking place. Satan wants us to believe that the fundamental problem is systemic oppression and racism, not our sin. That the solution is to establish autonomous zones and to defund the police, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that the enemy is the person sitting on the other side of the political aisle, not the demonic forces who raise arguments and opinions against the knowledge of God. With the recent Senate confirmation hearing of Supreme Court Justice nominee Amy Conant Barrett and the upcoming presidential election, many who identify themselves as liberals have voiced their concern that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. They say that we must protect at all costs a woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion, even if it means packing the Supreme Court. Stop for a moment and consider how it's shaded. It's about protecting women's reproductive rights. Sounds noble. Not about killing innocent babies. 
It's about calling something good. Something God calls evil. And we see the same sort of argument used to defend LBGTQ rights. Let me ask. According to the word of God, whose agenda is being promoted and followed? I'll tell you one thing. It's not Joe Biden's or Kamala Harris's or Planned Parenthood's or the Democratic Party's. It's the lies of Satan, whom the scripture describes in John 8:44 as a murderer from the beginning, who does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. It is a shameless attack on the truth of God in his word that explicitly states that all life is from God and starts at conception and that marriage is to be between a man and a woman. But what about on a more personal level, in our day-to-day lives? How does Satan get a foothold into our minds and tempt us to believe his lies? Well, he makes us minimize our sin and elevate our works. He persuades us to believe that repentance is easy and that grace is cheap. No need for radical amputation or for putting off and putting on. To draw our heart to sin, he presents the bait and hides the hook. Or to use another analogy, he presents the golden cup and hides the poison that it contains, promoting the pleasure, the profit, and delight of yielding to sin, while concealing the shame, the loss, and the wrath that certainly follows. He paints sin with virtue's color, labeling fear of man as being shy, covetousness as being financially frugal, calling thwarted pride, low self-esteem, and spiritual apathy, contentment. He has a playbook full of trick plays, and he strategizes against our greatest weaknesses. Left to ourselves, we don't stand a chance against Satan and his devices. But Christ, who is our commander-in-chief, promises to always lead us in triumph. The question is, are we following him? Are we following him? In this spiritual warfare, are we truly devoted to Christ and his word or to something else? With so much talk on social media these days, most of which leads us away from the truth, are we spending more time exposing ourselves to Satan's lies or to the truth that is found in the word of God. What occupies your thoughts these days? As the serpent deceived Eve, are our thoughts being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ? This leads us to our third point for this morning which is found in verse 2. The agents of apostasy, 
the agents of apostasy. As I was studying and preparing for this sermon, I was curious to actually see how often false teaching and heresy is talked about in the scripture. Have you guys ever wondered that? When we turn to the Old Testament, we read of countless warnings given against idolatry and apostasy. And the many false prophets who turned the heart of Israel away from the one true and living God. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus confronted the false teachers of his days, namely the Pharisees, scribes, and religious leaders, and reserved his harshest criticism for these hypocrites. But as we consider the church age that we are living in, how many of the churches mentioned in the New Testament do you think had to deal with false teachers within their congregation? Well, aside from the church in Ephesus, addressed here in the letter of 1 Timothy as well as 2 Timothy, there was the church in Corinth in the book of 2 Corinthians, the church of Colossae in Paul's letter to the Colossians, the church in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians, the churches in Crete in Titus, the churches in the provinces of Galatia or Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, in the epistle to the Galatians. There is also mention of false teachers in the epistle to the Hebrews and in the letters of First and Second John. The book of Jude and Second Peter were written specifically to address doctrinal heresy and apostasy in the church. And in the book of Revelation, the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira were condemned by Christ for tolerating and embracing false teachers. It would not be an overstatement to say that false teaching was rampant in the early church. It shouldn't surprise us then that in the history of Lighthouse Bible Church, including here in San Jose, we have had to deal with heresy and false doctrine within the church. And we will continue to fight that battle for the truth of God's word and in increasing measures until Christ returns. The source and origin of apostasy being Satan and his demons, the agents of apostasy are the false teachers who come into the local church. And in order to deceive from within, they associate with the church and try to blend in, to look like you and me, to act like you and me, and to talk like you and me. In Acts chapter 20, as the Apostle Paul is about to set sail from Ephesus for the last time, he calls the elders of the church to himself and gives them this solemn charge. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Why? What concerned Paul? And move them to give this final charge. Verse 29. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Similarly, Jesus warned his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
you will recognize them by their fruits. And in his Olivet Discourse, speaking of the signs of the end of the age, Jesus reminds them again in Matthew 24, see that no one leads you astray. For many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and many will fall away. To heed the words of Christ and to guard against apostasy means that we are to examine not only their doctrine and their talk, but also their practice and their walk. Look with me at verse 2 of 1 Timothy 4. These false teachers are called liars, whose lives are marked by insincerity or hypocrisy, as it is better translated in the NASB. We're not talking about some accidental deception. As agents of Satan, who himself is a liar and the father of lies, these false teachers are intentional about leading people away from the faith. We also see in this verse that their consciences are seared. That is to say, they have been desensitized to the truth. Refusing to obey their consciences to the point that they are no longer able to judge between what is right and what is wrong. They lack integrity, sincerity, and genuineness in their conduct and in their behavior. Instead, their lives reflect a hypocrisy and ungodliness that accords with their false teaching. In direct contrast to the seared consciences of these false teachers, Paul reminds Timothy in chapters 1 and 2 that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That he is to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And that those who lead the church, including the deacons who lead in service, are to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Brothers and sisters, what is the aim of your life? Would you say that you are actively pursuing a pure love, a good conscience, and a sincere faith? Here in this verse and throughout the scripture, we see a direct and inseparable connection between doctrine and living. That is because how we live flows out of what we believe. How we live flows out of what we believe. And bad doctrine inevitably leads to ungodly living. Whereas sound doctrine in the word of God is able to make us wise for salvation and produce the fruit of godly living. But I appreciated this point that Dr. Tom Pennington made at a shepherd's conference a few years ago. Speaking to an audience of pastors and church leaders, he said this. That while it is true that bad doctrine always leads to ungodly living, it is also true that ungodly living leads to bad doctrine. Let me say that one more time. While it is true that bad doctrine leads to ungodly living, It is also true that ungodly living through a seared conscience leads to bad doctrine, which can lead to apostasy. 
This happens as people twist the truth to accommodate their sinful decisions and lifestyle. And at our church, we have frequently encountered this in counseling and church discipline cases. Whether it's in pursuing an ungodly relationship, justifying same-sex attraction, or harping over quote-unquote errors in the Bible. If you are listening this morning and living in unrepentant sin, it is only a matter of time before Satan convinces you to embrace a false doctrine that leads you away from the faith. And we have no greater example of this reality than these ungodly teachers whom Satan uses as his emissaries to promote lies, to draw people away from Christ. In the following verse, we see what it is that these false teachers taught. The depiction of apostasy, verse 3. Here in verse 3, Paul gives us a specific example of the heresy that had crept into the Ephesian church. Look with me there. It came in the form of self-denial and asceticism. As these false teachers forbid marriage and required abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. As mentioned before, this is a subtle but blatant distortion of the truth. And Satan uses it to deceive, mislead, and draw people away from the person and work of Christ. Notice that in what these false teachers promoted, there are elements of truth from Scripture. Recall that Jesus commended fasting in Matthew chapter 9, and celibacy or singleness in Matthew 19. But they were to be used for a particular purpose. It was never meant to be a prerequisite or means to attain salvation. These false teachers were requiring and forbidding it in the sense that adherence was necessary to be saved and essential for true spirituality. And as one theologian put it, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And lying statements garnished with truth are poison to the soul. At the heart of this legalistic, works-based, man-centered teaching is an assault on the gospel of grace and the truth of God's word. The Apostle Paul addressed this more extensively in his letter to the Colossians. If I can have the next slide up for In Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16, we read, Therefore, since you have been made alive in Christ, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, who is Christ. If 
with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Sound familiar? Which are according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. It boils down to this. There's Christ in his word and there's everything else. With the exception of divine revelation, all other teachings are self-made human religion. Call it whatever you want. Color it however you will. They may sound familiar, contain elements of truth, have an appearance of wisdom. But at the end of the day, they are devoid of the true substance that belongs to Christ. And therefore, their teaching is demonic and damning, leading people away from the faith. Anything, anything that adds to, takes away from, or replaces Christ is not to be tolerated in the church, but rather rejected. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 This brings us to our four, final point found in verse 4-5. through five. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Here in these verses, we see the remedy to apostasy. The remedy to apostasy. As a counter-argument to the lies of the false teachers, the Apostle Paul simply points to the fact that everything created by God is good. Now, that should sound familiar to us. Where have we heard that before? What does the Apostle Paul appeal to? He points to the authoritative and inerrant truth of God's word. As he did earlier in 1 Timothy 2, when he addressed the issue of women who were teaching and exercising authority over men in the church, Paul makes reference to the creation account recorded in Genesis 1-2. to He does this to show plainly that what these false teachers were promoting contradicted the clear testimony of Scripture. According to Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made and pronounced it what? Good. Very good. And applying this to the context of the church in Ephesus at the time meant recognizing that even marriage and foods were good and gracious gifts from God, intended to be enjoyed and received with thanksgiving. Now, it is true That we as sinful humanity have corrupted, perverted, and misused these gifts. Ultimately, failing to give thanks to God for them. But God has redeemed them through his appointed means of grace. Look at me at what it says at the end of verse 5. For it is made holy, that is sanctified, consecrated, or set apart for his purpose. By what? By the word of God and prayer. 
by the word of God in prayer. That is to say, the word of God enables one whose mind has been renewed by the truth through the message of salvation to appreciate all that he created as good. And similarly, prayer lifted up by those who have been transformed by the gospel enables one to receive with gratitude marriage, foods, and all that God created for his glory and for our enjoyment. Therefore, Paul concludes, if it is received with thanksgiving, and this condition is repeated twice for added emphasis, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. And according to his word, at the end of the day, it's not about what we eat or don't eat, whether we marry or remain single. It's about giving thanks and glory to God as the creator and giver of all good things. And that is the truth that these false teachers denied. What does Paul does here? What Paul does here, and not only here, but consistently throughout his ministry, is to go to the only remedy for battling apostasy, the truth and light of Scripture. And he does this to expose the external religiosity and the false gospel of asceticism that had come into the church. For the Apostle Paul, this was a firm, unwavering conviction. In Acts 20, which we had read earlier, After warning the Ephesian elders that false teachers would be coming into the church, speaking lies to lure people away from the faith, Paul didn't simply wish them good luck and offer to pray for the church. Although I'm sure he prayed for the church. He exhorted them to pay careful attention and to be alert and pointed them to God's provision and protection against apostasy. Anticipating the spiritual attacks that would come upon the church after he leaves, he says in verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He consistently pointed others to the word of God and to the God of the word. And as we consider our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin, we see how he similarly dealt with Satan's lies and deception. In Luke 4, he resisted the temptations of the devil in the same way that we are called to, with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. At the recent ACBC Biblical Counseling Conference that some of us attended virtually, Dr. John MacArthur made this point that Jesus not only knew the word, he believed the word. He accurately interpreted the word. He loved the word. And he applied the word. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we are to follow our Savior's example to engage in spiritual warfare, and to combat demonic ideologies with the truth of his word. 
So, Lighthouse Bible Church, if that is God's high calling for us to guard against apostasy in our lives and in our church, how are we doing? Do we truly believe with all our heart that the only remedy to apostasy is the inerrant and authoritative word of God? If so, do we know his word? Do we believe his word? Accurately interpret his word? Do we love his word? And do we apply his word? Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. May that verse take on a whole new level of significance as we consider the spiritual battle we are in. Before we end our time together this morning, I just want to quickly give you four points of application. As we consider God's high calling for the church, in light of the spiritual battle we are engaged in, and the certainty, the source, the agent, the depiction And the remedy to apostasy. First, we are to examine your faith. Examine your faith. Scripture reminds us that the place to begin in guarding against apostasy in the church is for each of us to look at ourselves. Are we truly saved? Is Christ Lord of your life? And not just part of your life, but all of it. Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, said this, Christ is either Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. Christ calls for nothing less than complete surrender and submission. Never assume that a profession of faith is the same thing as a true confession of faith, or that being baptized or becoming a member of a local church saves you in any way. Is Christ Lord of your entire life? And is his word the final authority in your life? If he isn't, I would plea with you to repent from your sins and turn to Christ today. Our Savior is as merciful as he is just, Gracious and loving as he is righteous and holy. And the promise that is given to all is that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So don't delay lest you fall into apostasy. I encourage you to talk to someone before you leave this morning. After examining your faith, we are secondly to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith. We see this command to fight and hold fast to the faith, not only in the letter of 1 Timothy, but also throughout the scripture. In Jude 3, we read, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary To write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
What compelled you to write this letter? Verse 4. For certain people have crept in, unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And since apostasy is an ongoing problem in the church, a continuous battle and conflict, they are to be contending, or literally agonizing, in the present infinitive, for the faith. Now what does it mean to contend for the faith? Dr. John MacArthur explains it this way. First of all, be true to the scripture. Know your Bible and be faithful to it. Secondly, support faithful pastors and teachers who honor the truth without compromise. Then thirdly, give unflinching witness to the truth of God's word. Live it and proclaim it. And do everything you can to make possible the training of more faithful warriors for the truth. That's how we battle. So we are to examine our faith. Contend for the faith. And thirdly, defend the faith. Defend the faith. In the Bible, there is a high calling given to the leadership of the church particularly the pastors and elders, to defend the faith and to protect the flock from false teaching. In the first two verses that you see up above, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, who is pastoring the church in Ephesus, and to Titus, who is pastoring in Crete, about their calling as a pastor and about the qualifications of an elder. But church, I want to remind you that Christian apologetics is not just a limited calling for a few, but it is for all believers in the church. As disciples of Jesus Christ who are called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples of all nations, we will face resistance. And we each must be ready to defend the faith in an age marked by tolerance for error and intolerance for the truth. We must do so prayerfully, with gentleness and respect, as it says in 1 Peter 3. But without compromising the truth, we will be tempted to avoid conflict and opposition. So as a church, we need to be on our knees, praying for wisdom, boldness, and strength, to stand with Christ as we are attacked, slandered, and reviled for for proclaiming and living the gospel. Finally, we are called not only to examine our faith, to contend for the faith, and to defend the faith, but also to have faith. To have faith, and this is vitally important. If it were left up to us to remain in the faith, we would all become apostates. Every single one of us, from Pastor Mark to the elders and deacons to every member of Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose. We are called to persevere in the faith. But ultimately, it is not about how great our faith is, but about how great Christ is. It's not about the greatness of our faith. It's about the greatness of the one in whom we place our faith. 
Apostasy will arise in the church. False teachers will come in to lead astray. But if we are truly his, Christ will keep us from falling away and will lead us all the way home. And that is as sure a promise as any other promise in his word. We see this in the life of Peter, who, as you may recall, denied Christ three times as he is heading to the cross. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Verse 32. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter's faith would come under attack by Satan, just as the apostate Judas's would. But it would not fail. Not because of Peter's zeal, self-confidence, and determination. And certainly not because he was smarter and stronger than Judas. But because Christ would see to it that Peter would persevere in the faith until the end. And as our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Christ is presently at the right hand of the Father doing what? He's interceding for us. Interceding for us. So let that be an encouragement to us who love him. To hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10.23 And he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4.4 The examples of apostasy of Joshua Harris and Marty Sampson are deeply humbling and sobering. They are a cautionary tale. And we ought to pray for them and for our church. They should compel us to contend for the faith, to defend the truth of God's word, and before that, to examine ourselves, whether we are truly devoted to Christ and his word. But they also remind us that we can place our trust in no sinful human being, but in Christ alone. The only one who is worthy of our trust Because he is the only one who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So brothers and sisters, in the days ahead, with all the turmoil we see in our world and with the apostasy that is certain to come in the church, let us cling even tighter to Christ, the living word of God, who is the only rock upon which we may stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to exalt you as the author and perfecter of our faith. Would you indeed do that? Perfect our faith. In light of our enemy, the spiritual battle, the apostasy, enable us as your church to persevere not in our strength, but in yours. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.